So this podcast, this lesson intends to help us challenge ourselves to be more effective consumers of strategic intelligence. This is also for even intelligence officers themselves who will soon be, if you already haven't, starting to receive um, national intelligence briefings, something a little different um, than the joint services. Now, this lesson, this podcast, is not an intelligence workshop. This is not training. Again, this is the academic study of intelligence. Also, and I think it's important to point out, that intelligence is especially vital to information, influence, and persuasion campaigns. This is the case because the human mind and human behavior are most often the target of influence, persuasion, and information campaigns, requiring an in-depth use of not only human intelligence, but intelligence on populations, narratives, networks, and behavior. Also, any strategic information, persuasion, or information campaign must necessarily employ secrecy and deception. I should say must in some cases, especially with regards to subversion and influence. And these disciplines are often conducted through intelligence operations. In warfare, intelligence products may often drive policy, strategy, and operations. Mauritius Tiberius Augustus wrote in the late 16th, excuse me, the late 6th cent, uh, century, and by the way, uh, Augustus or Mauritius, I guess as he's often called, um, had great success as a general against the Persians in his life. And so he writes, our commanders ought to adapt his stratagems to the disposition of the enemy general. If the latter is inclined to rashness, he may be enticed into premature and reckless action. If he is on the timid side, he may be struck down by continued surprise raids. So he's very much talking about getting into the head of the commander, finding out what kind of person he is, how he or she makes decisions, and how he, how he or she behaves. U.S. Army War College professor Richard Gabriel notes while discussing best practices of 14th century warfare in Asia as well as in Eastern Europe, strategic intelligence is perhaps the most valuable asset at a commander's disposal in planning the operational conduct of a campaign. Strategic intelligence provides the basis for strategic vision and for developing the military component of the overall strategy. In other words, we must never construct a strategy to reflect the forces we have and the maneuvers we already know. Instead, we must focus our efforts on defeating an adversary in war, finding parity or stability with competitors in peacetime, and to seek out opportunities in order to strengthen our alliances, for example. Even some of the most brutal military campaigns involving army against army in the open, in history, these were intelligence-driven. It was often not enough to go barreling ahead without knowing the dispositions and attitudes of one's enemy. Writing about the Mongols under Genghis Khan, W.B. W. Barrett says, Before any campaign began, they would put their well-developed spying network into action. They would find out as much about the country they planned to subdue as they possibly could. 
who the key players in the ruling administrative were, administration were, which of them were dissatisfied, what the strengths and weaknesses of their armies were, only when they were satisfied that they had this sound basis of knowledge would they then launch their attack. In some cases, armies have spent, been known to spend years, even decades, of surveillance, reconnaissance, espionage, and analysis before even beginning their first assignment, if only we could be so lucky in every case. Specifically, intelligence is, and this is according to the U.S. Marine Corps in 2013, Intelligence identifies potential advantages offered by the environment, describes limitations imposed by the environment, ascertains and assesses enemy strengths to be avoided, uncovers enemy critical vulnerabilities that can be exploited, and enables rapid decision making. Now a little bit on future adversaries' courses of action. Intelligence analysts will often try to predict an adversary or a competitor's action, or an ally in some cases, what their most likely, most dangerous, and most favorable course of actions might be. Predictive intelligence attempts to ready strategic leaders for numerous future circumstances. When there is limited time, some commanders ask for the most dangerous, also called the most deadly, course of action, so that she is ready for the worst case scenario. Now, the dilemma of forecasting is that by forecasting an event, the event may not occur. So you forecast an event, then the consumer of the intelligence product, let's say it's a commander in war, may adjust her disposition of her troops. And that may thwart an attack. So in other words, an intelligence officer says, an attack is coming at dawn. This is what my intelligence says, tells me. It's highly likely or almost certain. And then the commander she goes ahead and changes the composition of her troops. The enemy comes over the ridge, realizes, uh-oh, we might be falling into a trap, and then conducts a tactical retreat. So nothing happens. There's little to be said for a non-event. And so in some cases, even the best intelligence forecasters become unsung heroes, and at worst, in some cases in history, policymakers falsely believe in hindsight that particular forecasting intelligence was wrong. Intelligence successes are rarely known and an intelligence officer does not care. Success will almost always find silence and sometimes even derision. One important thing to remember from last week is the importance of estimative probability. There is no certainty. I've had several intelligence customers ask me for certainty. I've had several that have wanted algorithms that can predict future events with near certainty. This is completely laughable. Until we hack the space-time continuum, this will never occur. What is important is to ask about <clears throat> methodologies. Ask about dissents. Use plain language when you're asking questions. Don't be afraid to, to use very plain direct language. And if you find yourself at a wall, or if you find yourself against a wall, if you will, in your communications with intelligence officers, you can always call in help uh, for you to communicate your needs. Some of the greatest intelligence analysts are not necessarily great verbal communicators. So bringing in a friendly, a friendly third party is always an option. And if you really get to loggerheads, please call or email me or any of the other faculty at CIC 
In my case, anyways, my students are students for life, and I'm here to support you the rest of your careers, not just while you're at CIC. Another thing to keep in mind is policymaker and lawmakers want for raw intelligence, something that came up during discussion last week. Raw intelligence is not intelligence. It is only a report that is then used to conduct intelligence that will regard many sources in a greater context of expertise. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about red teams. Um, and then after this, I'm going to talk about just a few other analytic ideas, and then we're going to be done. Um, I think this, plus the readings, plus everything we had last week, um, is more than enough uh, to generate really uh, rich debate this upcoming lesson. Red teams. A red team comprises a group, internal or external to an organization, uh, or it can be combined, internal and external to an organization. Uh, they comprise a group that uncovers ways for an agency or office or service or unit to improve its strategies and functioning. Now, a red cell offer, often refers to those actors who play an adversary during war games and planning. They act as dynamic spoilers and thoughtful enemies to add levels of realism and ultimately inspire better strategies of friendly forces. A red cell may or may not play a role on a red team. And if you have questions between red cells and red teams, please bring those questions to plenary and we can discuss. Some of this is discussed in your CIC information primer, and certainly uh, it's in the doctrine. Um, it's in doctrine that you have access to for your CIC course and for a number of other courses. In the intelligence rep, uh, realm, red teams often war game as if they are the enemy. Um, this is not always the case, but this can be the case in some intelligence offices. Um, as if they are the enemy to better analyze friendly vulnerabilities and adversarial strengths, dispositions, and compositions during exercises and plans. Red teaming should also be conducted in unclassified environments using the creative insights of screenwriters, directors, authors, artists, scholars, and other non-experts. This is something we did at Homeland Security and Special Operations Command. We'd bring in screenwriters, we'd bring in novel authors, fiction authors, we'd bring in even musicians. We had someone from the Steely, uh, Steely Dan, I guess Steely Dan, that band, uh, we brought them in, we brought in Dan Aykroyd, we brought in all sorts of people to bring in interesting and new ideas that we otherwise would not have thought of. Um, outside imagination will test the boundaries of what one might initially think is likely or possible. Uh, years before 9-11, for example, there were three fictional authors who wrote about terrorists using commercial airliners as weapons against Washington, D.C. It's a shame that uh, they were not brought into the red teams, though to be fair, their ideas probably would have found deaf ears as the, um, the pre-9-11 preposterous nature of such a notion. And there's a number of reasons for the assumption that mass... Uh, attacks that caused mass casualties were unlikely to occur, even though many people had thought of throwing um, jetliners into the Capitol, the White House, and other buildings in Washington, D.C. Um, in very popular fiction. Okay, about effective red teams. Uh, this is according to Donald Kagan and Mark Metesk. One, break the rules. Two, question everything. Three, Offer contrarian perspectives. Four, identify an otherwise overlooked or underappreciated decision trap. 
Five, employ a multidisciplinary range of skills, talents, and methods. Six, adopt the cultural perspective of the adversary or competitor, something that's very difficult to do. And seven, shed the cultural biases of the decision makers. From, the from, the, from personal observations of directing, coordinating, and participating, so this is the world according to Howard, so please take this with a big grain of salt. In both red teams and red cells, in the intelligence community, I've witnessed two particular actions that often may strengthen intelligence services. The first is that one person be designated as the contrarian. Whatever final analyses, judgments, and recommendations come from red teaming or from a red cell on a red team, this one person must disagree and at least on paper must develop a strategic plan, skeleton, accordingly. For example, if a red team war games out a scenario and determines that country X will unlikely invade country Y, this odd man out must leave at the conclusion of the exercise and prepare an intelligence strategy under the assumption that country X will or is about to invade country Y. This is a method to hedge one's bets without trying to do all things in all places. Any government has limited time, money, and manpower, so it is impossible to prepare for all scenarios. Thus, red, te red teaming is one way to war game out likely courses of action that will impel planning down a certain path, to appropriate resources down this one path. The odd man out will leave the exercise under the assumption that the path leads in the opposite direction. In this way, when there is a black swan event, or if the red team's predictions are off, and they often are, then a leader can use the contrarian's plan as a counterpoint to the mainstream conclusions of the red team. It may often then be easier to steer a middle course when events unfold, because very often it's not going to be black or white, it's going to be somewhere in the gray. And of course, if the red team is completely wrong, then, and this is very rare, then the contrarian's plan may become a starting uh, blueprint for action. Now, this may sound like an odd or unnecessary laborious task, especially for the designated contrarian, who I've played uh, several times, but intelligence services notoriously are unable to predict world-changing events. From the fall of the Soviet Union to Egypt's attack against Israel, Thus designated, only one person as the contrarian is a relatively small investment with potentially wide-reaching benefit. The second suggestion I have, and this is from, again, my Howard's personal experience, so take this with a grain of salt, please. The second is that one person be brought on the team without any warning, without any preparation, and without any relative specialization. This person is an equal chair to the others on the team. It may be an information technology specialist, an IT person, a receptionist, or someone from HR, for example. In some cases, this person will apply the common sense test to any assumption, prediction, or conclusion. Or in some cases, think of something no imaginative storyteller, subject matter expert, area expert, or methodological expert can yet imagine. Whoever coordinates and directs the team, the red team, must be on hand to ensure this unprepared, non-expert has equal time 
an equal input to all others, and that no professional retaliation or bad career mark will be made. The only expectation is that this outside, unprepared person put forth effort and speak up when appropriate. If he or she does not, in the end, help the red team, there should also be no negative consequence. This, in turn, may inspire the person to speak out as she or he feels appropriate. So those are some suggestions about red teaming. A uh, couple quick words about information and intelligence sharing. For information and intelligence sharing, so this is really important for intelligence officers, but frankly, this is important for all strategic leaders, uh, especially for your staff or if you are on staff, for example, of a combatant command. Continually ask, with whom should I share this information or intelligence? The culture should be need to show as opposed to need to know. Because intelligence focuses on enemies, competitors, threats, challenges, and vulnerabilities. And because intelligence never prescribes friendly courses of action, the same intelligence analysis may be equally important to a military and local law enforcement alike if analyses affect these entities. So in other words, we're all facing a common enemy. We have to understand who else is this going to affect, and then we should share that intelligence as appropriate and as the law and norms allow. Of course, you may need to reframe an analysis for the needs of a different audience. And this is important because this is, there's very few formal positions that offer uh, intelligence sharing to the degree that I'm going to describe. Learn the laws, techniques, and administrative steps to declassify and reclassify reports or release parts of reports to ensure proper information sharing with partners with different security clearance levels. Know the legal, administrative, and technology officers across agencies that can help reclassify and release reports or parts of reports legally, properly, and efficiently. This is very difficult. There are many steps involved. There are many personalities and people. Uh, there are many different uh, levels from you know, GS-12 to SES-3 that may be involved in a process like this. It really is, I mean, once you know the laws and once you know the technical sort of know-how of how this is done, the techniques, if you will, it then becomes an art. Oftentimes it becomes an art of gaining trust and interpersonal skills and having a certain amount of passion to make sure that it happens quickly and on time. And if you are an intelligence officer or you work with intelligence officers, it is really the onus is on them to uh, get the information to the right people at the right time in the right place. Intelligence really, at the end of the day, when we are, certainly it leads strategy, uh, it leads operational art, it leads operations, it leads tactics, but it's also about mitigating risk. We have to understand its limitations, and this comes back to these ideas of estimated probability. From the standpoint of defense, Intelligence, counterintelligence, operational security, and deception can only mitigate risk. There is no perfect defense. Complete inoculation from threats is impossible. Even if you institute, for example, complete surveillance of a population, reading all electronic and physical messages, listening in on all conversation, 
and gathering all metadata on people by every instrument of state and civil power, there may still be viable attempted attacks and compromise. And so we have to accept that and we have to be okay with that. And we have to look forward in a world that is obviously uncertain as the world has always been because we don't know what's gonna happen in the future uh, and realize that we, all we can do is manage risk. There is no such thing as a perfect defense. Thus, it is vital for an intelligence officer to manage leadership expectations, and it's important for us to manage our own expectations. Intelligence informs leaders to mitigate risk. One does not erase risk. Thank you.